I'm Theo. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. Apologies accepted. Apologies accepted. The podcast. And I'm not Theo. And I am not Juliet. And welcome. Uh, Theo, how you doing? What's shaking bacon? What'd you buy this week? Oh, wow. Have I bought a lot. Um, Have you? That's so exciting. I did. I'm so glad you asked that question. How weird (laughs) that you asked that question because I was like, nobody's going to care about what I bought. I care. I bought bocce balls. Off no. of eBay. You did? They're antique bocce balls, yes. Oh, so and cool. I am super, super excited about them. And then, yeah. uh, so my friend Terry's birthday is the end of June, oh, and wow. he likes what antiques. What could you possibly buy Terry? That's what is so impossible, because Terry buys himself anything that he wants, and it's like, yeah. I want to get you a fun present. And he's like, it's not important, it's not important. Um, okay, cool. So... I know some things like he likes French, he likes antiques, he likes metal kind of industrial. And so on eBay, I found this metal French sign that says bocce ball court in French. How cool is that? Like Bouldrome, right? Something <laughs> like that. Uh-huh. And yeah. And so to trick him, because I was like, I really love this sign and it's awesome, but I don't know that he will. Because I've bought him other things before that I thought he might like. And he's yeah. always been like, eh, thank you. Nice. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, um, so I sent a photo of the sign with my bocce balls. And I was like, yeah. look, I bought bocce balls and a little sign. Uh-huh. And he was like, that's nice. Oh. So I'm keeping the sign. Because my trick was... <laughs> If he had a big response, like, oh, yeah. that sign's so cool. Like, Surprise, yeah. bitch. Happy birthday. Um, no. Well, what a cool thing to have. I agree. And I will send you <laughs> a photo of it. And you, you just tell me how it. awesome it is. Right? I will. But don't send me the sign or the bocce balls because I have nowhere to put them. So. Oh, they're mine. <laughs> they, they go nowhere. I, how much were the bocce balls? They were 20 bucks. That's it? That was it. Yes. Well... I mean, they're on eBay, and <laughs> and the description is what got me, right? Because there's tons of bocce balls for sale on eBay, right? Sure. You can get antique and vintage, and they're English, and like 200 bucks, $600, one yeah. not six, but for sure, there was one set that was like 200 I really wanted it, but at the same yeah. time, it's like, I'm not spending $200 on bocce balls, right? right? When are you ever going to play bocce anyway? There's like two weeks during the year that it's nice enough to go outside. And- I'm going to force that shit to happen. <laughs> You could have parties surrounding, you know, bocce ball parties. Well, I was hoping that the mayor might be a bocce ball fan. <laughs> and then, oh, you're going to have to tell us about the mayor, too. Oh, so yeah, to I totally forgot story. about that. Um, so anyway, uh, the bocce balls, yeah, 20 bucks. And the description was, um, I am helping an elderly lady clean her house. I was like, sold. Sold. <laughs> Whatever you're not mine. I'm buying it. Here's money. Take it all. Awesome. So, uh, so yeah. And then, um, 
Right. So we have a friend who is personal friends with uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago fame, right? Yes. And before I ever knew that our friend was friends with Lori Lightfoot, right? Uh, in the dark days of the Trump administration, it hurts to say that name. I would <sighs> remember when he was picking on Chicago and cities, right? With Democratic mayors and like, uh -huh. this is a shithole. It's going to burn the country to the ground. It's right. all filled with terrorists and terrible people and blah. So Chicago was one of those, and and he's had some shit to say about Lori Lightfoot. I don't remember all the details because I really am trying to forget all about the forget Trump administration. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I just remember being awed by her every time I saw her behind a microphone and what she had to say because it was reasonable, it was clear, it was direct, it was forceful, right? But she didn't get into the whole name-calling bullshit stuff, right? Right. But she flirted with it, and that got my respect, because I appreciate a little bit of shade. So Karen mentioned that um, the mayor was coming, and would we uh, be interested in holding a little event at our house, right? Uh -huh. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And Karen had remembered my, I will just say like my admiration for the mayor, right? So that's why she thought of us. So cool. And uh, the mayor came. She was Yay. very tiny. I expected really? her to be like this towering figure. No, I was like, wow. She's um, like 5'2"? You're, yeah, just about. Wow. Like, do you have cameras in my house? Uh-huh. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah, she she was short and I was like, I wow. You're I, so small. Why? <laughs> <laughs> You're so tiny and cute. Uh, but in that way that I have learned to never um say anything to my heroes. Yeah. Right? Uh because of Octavia Butler and Mink Stoll, uh two people that I um admired, had celebrity crushes on whatever and had the good fortune to meet in real life. And then confess my admiration for them, and it never went well. So oh, no. I don't do that anymore. I was, I was just like, "Hey, thank you so much. What you know? What an honor. Uh, it's true. What an honor, right? Sure. This lunch went great. There were like I don't know about ten people who showed up, um, and she gave a um, a very short personal speech on uh, speeches. She's she gave a talk discussion, right? Whatever on uh, democracy and and her viewpoints around what's happening politically, sure. um, the need for uh, governing from the center, right? Yeah. And yeah. then, um, okay. yeah, and so just, just general stuff like that. Did everybody want pictures with her? No. Uh, oh, that's good. Everyone forgot to take pictures. Oh. So, yikes. And then, um, let's see. And because I was shy, I didn't tell this story, but I will tell it here. Yes. So my sister-in-law is a horrible school student, hated school, didn't like to go, didn't like to study. And when she was in the third grade, she had to do a report on a great American city. Uh-huh. And because she was completely not interested in school at all. Right. The teacher assigned her Chicago. Uh-huh. And she was supposed to, like, research the city, come up and give a report on the city, right? Great American city. And her report on Chicago went down in history <laughs> as the least research. That's funny. Book report that a student ever did. So, yeah, I was going to tell that story, and it was like, don't talk, Theo. Just shut up. 
you just be quiet. Well, I'm glad it went well. I was wondering all, all week how that was going. So yeah. I'm glad uh, everything worked out. Me too. Um, and that was it. So what's shaken bacon? Oh, God, nothing. I just spent most of the week trying to avoid working. So um, so I did work, of course, because I have a job. Uh, but mostly it was just sort of me slacking off as much as I possibly could, which is not good. And if anyone that I work with listens to this, I'm, uh, it's not true. Um, I work very hard all the time. But. <laughs> you're always working. Whenever I text you, you're like, I cannot talk to you. Right? I am working. I'm working. Absolutely. Um, but it's really foggy in San Francisco today, if anyone's interested in the weather. Um, it, uh, that's about all that's going on in my life. I might take a walk later today. That could be exciting. Um, but other than that, uh, absolutely nothing is shaken bacon, which is good because there's enough going on in the world to make up for anything that could be happening in my life. Oh, yes. So, yikes. Yes. Let's not talk about that, though. Well, we're going to have to talk about something that's going on in the world because that's kind of the point of our podcast where there's something happened and then there's an apology for it. And uh, that's Let's a talk wonderful about something that segue. happened 30 years ago instead of talking about what's going on right now, though. How about that? Let's do that. And <laughs> it'll be a nice reminder that um, it's always been terrible to be alive. It's always bad. Yes. <laughs> so we do have... Um, a topic this week. <laughs> um, in October 1995, uh, Marlene Simmons of the LA Times reported that then-President Clinton, if you remember him, and if you remember him, you're probably surprised that it was 30 years ago, but it really was, um, he apologized to the survivors and families of people who unknowingly had been subjects of government-sponsored radiation experiments. So he made these remarks um, at a ceremony as he accepted a, a 900-page report from the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, which he appointed to study the secret experiments. And uh, these experiments had begun in about 1944 and went on for 30 years. Um, the uh, director of bioethics at Johns Hopkins was chair of the of the panel. Her name was Ruth Faden, and she formally presented this report to Clinton. Uh, the report, according to Physics Today, told a grim saga of abuses and insensitivities by physicians, physicists, and other researchers over three decades of government-sponsored radiation tests on mostly unsuspecting subjects. So the Atomic Energy Commission and other federal agencies had sponsored about 4,000 radiation experiments involving tens of thousands of subjects, many of whom had no idea that they were test cases. The experiments varied widely from a project in which researchers exposed subjects' entire bodies to heavy doses of radiation to cases in which pregnant women were given radioactive iron to determine what levels would show up in their babies to a series of tests in which radioactive substances were released into the atmosphere without residential populations being being informed. So all fun stuff. I'm sure no harm was done, right? All healthy, happy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, radiation in the air and not telling anybody that it's there and then just seeing what happens to those people. What could possibly go wrong? Nothing, because it's all absolutely. it's all for national security and science and yeah. other wonderful things. And we got to will... figure out the effect of, of radiation on people who might be working with it, right? So how else are we going to do that other than, you know, spring it on unsuspecting people? Exactly. So. Well, if you know that it's going to happen, then your brain could maybe shut down right. the effects of radiation. Yes. <laughs> like women in pregnancy. Exactly. Exactly. 
So um, the panel's verdict, Ruth Faden said, was that wrongs were clearly committed. She said, what most troubled the committee was the lack of respect for the American people that seemed to permeate the conduct of research. The period we examined was defined by arrogance. People had trust in their doctors, but the doctors who did the research often took advantage of that trust. So as I mentioned, the panel studied about 4,000 radiation experiments, um, but it unfortunately, I think for them, uh, recommended that only a handful of victims receive compensation. Um, they wanted to compensate people only where the government or researchers either deliberately misled the victims or where there was no medical benefit and they were physically harmed. So there were not a whole lot of uh, these 4,000 experiments. Um, they cited specifically three experiments, including one project in 1944, where 18 hospital patients, most of whom were terminally ill, were unknowingly injected with plutonium to determine how long the substance would remain in their body. And the purpose, of course, was to develop radiation exposure standards for workers in nuclear laboratories. And there's no other way we could do that other than injecting unknowing people with plutonium. And the committee also recommended that several subjects of total body irradiation experiments conducted during World War II and the subject of a zirconium injection experiment be included. Now, I'm thinking about that. Zirconium is a hard metal. It's like copper or something. It's, it's sort of like that. So how, how are you injecting zirconium into people? I don't even know. It's like chips, I guess. I, my, I, I mean, look into it. There's no way we could possibly ever find out. <laughs> there's no way we would ever want to know, I think, is really more the case. No, thank you. God, the things that we've done to people. I mean, it, it's just a nightmare. Never trust the government, I guess, is the, the lesson to take away from all of this. But um, we'll hear more about it, though. Don't worry. <laughs> there's, there's much more to come. Much more to come. Administration officials appeared to leave the door open for additional restitution, however. Um, Energy Secretary of the time, Hazel O'Leary, said in an interview that there could be thousands, many thousands of individuals who deserve payment. But she stressed that, fortunately and luckily for them, both the government and the panel were hampered by poor or non-existent record-keeping during that time. She said that of the 10,000 calls we received, about 3,000 people gave us enough information to enable us to look in records, and in all the searching of a quarter of a million pages, we found only 50 names. So, unfortunately for the government, they weren't able to make restitution to very many people. Uh, It just is, you know, no matter how hard we tried, there were only 50 people who we could even find names of, much less, you know, find out what happened to them and whether or not they deserved restitution. Uh, But she did say the compensatory funds would come out of her department's budget. And she also said, we are ready and willing to begin a negotiation. One thing all of us want to avoid is a protracted and expensive lawsuit against the government. Oh, please. Yes, absolutely. We must save the government from protracted and expensive lawsuits. Um, Right? Right. Because, you know. All of us want to avoid that, for sure. Nobody wants an expensive lawsuit against the government. I mean, the government can't give money away. (laughs) They have to compete with the Catholic Church. It's a race to the top. Oh, my God. It's the worst. Um, So a bunch of these studies were undertaken in secret. Obviously, um, this was long before it became standard practice to issue informed consent to medical research subjects. So I I guess I always assumed that informed consent was a thing, but not even close to being the case. Didn't really happen until 1974 when the government recognized the need to protect human subjects and established regulations that govern human research. Did that grow out of the Tuskegee? You know, that I think when was the Tuskegee thing? That was earlier. The 40s, but it went it went on for like years and years. Yeah, like decades. So one of the um, first times I remember hearing about um, 
uh, informed consent and stuff like that is the Nuremberg Code, which was a, a statement of principles that came out of the court trial of Nazi physicians who conducted medical experiments on concentration camp inmates. So among the Nuremberg Code's provisions were that the subjects of medical research must give their consent, that the research must be for the good of society and not random in nature, that risk must be minimized, and that subjects must be free to remove themselves from the experiments whenever they wanted. So these principles were discussed as early as 1947. I mean, this says as early as 1947, but that doesn't seem that early to me. But anyway, um, the Nuremberg Code was adopted for atomic, biological, and chemical warfare research by the military of the U.S. military in 1943—1953, I'm sorry. But the action was marked top secret and was not really made known until 1975. So the committee found little evidence that the government made an effort to inform its researchers about the new rules or to clarify many ambiguous issues, notably what consent means in practice. So uh, informed consent, um, the first, even before the Nuremberg Code, which is the first time I remembered hearing about it, um, it had been kind of a thing since about 1905, and there are two cases that uh, were relevant. One was Moore v. Williams, and the other is Pratt v. Davis. Um, I got this information from the Spring 2021 Oxner Journal. The the first author is Lydia Bazzano for the article that um, I stole all my information from. And uh, in the case of Moore v. Williams, the plaintiff, Anna Moore, consented to an operation on her right ear. However, once she was anesthetized, the physician decided to operate on her left ear because she, he figured that the right ear was not as severely affected by disease as had been expected. What ended up happening was that her hearing was further impaired by this operation. So she sued the surgeon for assault and battery in changing the laterality of the, laterality of the operation without consent. And the Supreme Court of Minnesota actually agreed that the surgeon should have obtained consent before performing surgery on the opposite ear. And then in the case of Pratt v. Davis, the plaintiff, Mrs. Parmelia J. Davis, had filed suit against her surgeon again for battery after he performed a hysterectomy without her consent. The physician had obtained consent for an earlier operation, but admitted to failing to obtain consent for the second procedure and not disclosing the fact that he intended to perform a hysterectomy to treat Mrs. Davis's epileptic seizures. Wow. Right? How is the womb related to epilepsy at all, except for female hysteria, I suppose? I suppose, right? But, oh my God. Um, he said that he intentionally misled the plaintiff as to the purpose of the operation, claiming that because she suffered from epilepsy, she was not competent to give her consent or to deliberate intelligently about her situation. Which is ridiculous. Uh, I don't even know what to do with all that. I mean, it's horrifying. Well, really. and, and even if arguably she's not competent... She must have a caretaker Somebody who is competent. Is competent yes, right? right? So you still have to talk to someone. So yeah. the appellate court stated in its decision in favor of Mrs. Davis that under a free government, the citizen's first and greatest right, which underlies all others, the fight to the inviolability of his person. In other words, his right to himself is a subject of universal acquiescence. And this right necessarily forbids a physician or surgeon, however skillful or eminent, who has been asked to examine, diagnose, advise, and prescribed to violate without permission the bodily integrity of his patient. Unless so, they're pregnant. Unless they're a woman. Right. <laughs> and then there was a case in 1914, Schlondorf v. Society of New York Hospital. That was the final landmark case that legally established the principle of patient autonomy. Uh, the plaintiff, plaintiff, Mary Schlondorf, explicitly stated her wish not to undergo surgery, yet was subjected to hysterectomy to remove a fibroid tumor without her consent. 
In the ruling, Judge Benjamin Cardoza wrote, Every human being of adult years and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done with his own body. And a surgeon who performs an operation without his patient's consent commits an assault for which he is liable in damages. So thank God for all that. Um, I think it's interesting that there's this, it's, it's, I think, only a, it's not a federal case. Um, but the guy did say, every human being of adult years and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done with his own body. That could be relevant today. It is relevant today, but also completely different. Yeah, I mean, completely different subject, but... Uh, not so much. Let's keep going into the past. <laughs> let's not talk about All right, let's talk about the current past. problems. So, um, notably, these landmark cases that established the legal precedent of patient autonomy all had female plaintiffs at a time when women did not have the right to vote in the United States, indelibly intertwining the right of patient autonomy with the right of a woman to consent to procedures on her own body. Now, I don't remember when women were given the right to vote, and there's no way to find out. There's but I think no it was before find... 1914. Actually, I don't like think they... I don't think women have the right to vote today, actually. Uh, I'm surprised um, that we do. Well, won't be for long. You don't have to worry about that, lady. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Jesus. Women's vote first. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how my brain is working today. Um, well, it was in August 26th of 2020, according to this article. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not correct. Let me phrase it better. So while we're looking that up, the principle of informed consent remained <laughs> nameless and not legally binding until the term was first publicly recorded in the court documents for the 1957 case Salgo versus Leland Stanford Jr. University Board of Trustees. The plaintiff in this case, a man, had arteriosclerosis and underwent a translumbar procedure to evaluate its extent. During the procedure, a contrast agent was injected into his aorta to identify blockages, and the procedure resulted in permanent paralysis of his lower limbs. He sued the University Medical Center and its chief surgeon for lack of disclosure of this potential risk. The appellate court directed that each physician must exercise practical insight in completely divulging potential procedural hazards and that physicians are liable for failing to disclose information that a patient would need to make an informed decision regarding medical procedures. This legal ruling was the first to identify and focus attention on the need to provide the patient with information about the potential benefits and the risks of any medical procedure. So these cases establish the legal framework for and the principle of informed consent, as well as the duty of physicians to obtain informed consent for diagnostic and or therapeutic medical procedures. Um, but the concept of informed consent in human subjects research began to emerge in parallel as a consequence of the investigation of Nazi war crimes at the end of World War II. So this is where the Nuremberg trial comes in again. Um, 23 physicians and bureaucrats in uh, 1947 were charged with crimes against humanity and war crimes for medical experiments conducted on concentration camp inmates in Nuremberg, Germany. The verdict of the International Military Tribunal, which was a trio of American judges empowered under international law adopted by the Allied powers, set forth a series of 10 basic rules for the conduct of exper human experiments that has become known as the Nuremberg Code. I will not go through all those rules. But the Nuremberg Code represents the first explicit attempt to regulate the ethical conduct of research experiments with human subjects and is notable for the emphasis it places on voluntary consent. 
A section of the ruling entitled Permissible Medical Experiments states, certain basic principles must be observed in order to satisfy moral, ethical, and legal concepts in human subjects' research, and the first of these concepts is the voluntary consent of the human subject. So back to the committee that did the, um, that put out this 900-page report uh, to President Clinton in 1995, this committee observed that national security was almost never cited by either physicians or government officials as a reason to keep their experiments secret. Discussions of policies on human experiments took place in secret for fear of embarrassing officials, of causing potential legal liability, and raising doubts among the public that might jeopardize the program. So Clinton mentioned that in his uh, apology, but it, it is interesting that uh, they didn't keep it secret because of national security. They kept it secret because they didn't want to be embarrassed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were operating for what? Like this went into the 70s? 74 at least. Yeah. 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 Well, after the establishment of informed consent. So, um, yeah, sorry, everybody that we're poisoning you. We kept it a secret because it's so embarrassing. Horrifying. Um, so I have some stuff about the apology, um, which we can talk about. I can read the apology, but I think you have some additional information that you wanted to share with us. So much additional information. I'm so because excited. It, well, you should be. <laughs> and I am. You should be very excited. Um, so this felt very much like, oh, another government conspiracy where they're experimenting on citizens uh mm-hmm. okay i sort Sad of know that what that roadmap that, but yeah right and you, so again it's just this thing of like another government conspiracy here we go we were experimenting on our citizens and blah 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 right and i know how i feel about that and I know what the apology is going to be and i know what the importance of the apology is right mm-hmm. uh so so i dived in a little bit to Like, who were these people that were experimented upon? It's very easy to lose sight of the humanity of individuals when we're talking about 4,000 people, right? Or maybe even higher, 10,000 people. Um, And I think it highlights some of the uh, egregious behavior, right? I mean, we all know this is bad. This is bad. This is naughty. This isn't good, right? Here's how bad it was. Okay, so... um, uh, and I'll just pick it up uh, from from midpoint in an article. Mm-hmm. Um, a few day, a few day, no, a few days, plural, after Hempelman's March 26, 1945, hi, my birthday, recommendation that a hospital patient be injected with plutonium. Right. Right. Langham of the Los Alamos Laboratory Health Division sent five micrograms of plutonium to Dr. Fridell with instructions for their use on a human subject. The subject, as it turned out, was already in Oak Ridge Army Hospital, a victim of an automobile accident that had occurred on March 24, 1945. He was a 53-year-old colored male named Eb Cade, who was employed by an Oak Ridge construction company as a cement mixer. The subject had serious fractures of his arms and leg, but otherwise was well-developed and well-nourished. The patient was able to tell his doctors that he'd always been in good health. Mr. Cade, or HP-12, the code HP stands for human product, was later assigned to a patient, and uh, let's see, he was reportedly injected with 4.7 micrograms of plutonium. The small amount of material injected in Mr. Cade was not 
uh, expected to produce any acute effects, and there was no indication that any were experienced. However, except for his fractures, Mr. Cade was apparently in good health and at the age of 53 could reasonably have been expected to live for another 10 to 20 years. Um, however, there was an... 20 ele- years? Yeah, he's 53. Well, you know, this was in the 40s, right? So an <laughs> average life expectancy was. Okay, but yeah, anyway. 10 to 20 years to, <laughs> of health, yeah, right. life. Um, but there was an elevated risk of plutonium-induced cancer. Um, I'll say. All right. Let's see. So one document in the course of, of treatment uh, noted that Mr. Cade had marked tooth decay and gum inflammation, and 15 of his teeth were extracted and sampled for plutonium. The committee was not able to determine whether the teeth were extracted primarily for medical reasons or for the purpose of sampling for plutonium. I can tell you already, I was looking for a trace of plutonium. Um, oh, God. In September of 1945, uh, uh, in a letter, Captain David Goldrig at Oak Ridge informed Langham that more bone specimens and extracted teeth will be shipped to you very soon for analysis. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, let's see. And then Mr. Cade departed suddenly from the hospital. He just uh, walked out. And he moved to Greensboro, North Carolina, um, where he died a few years later of a heart condition. Um, And uh, in a March 1946 letter, Wright Langham wrote to a doctor who was the primary uh, care physician at another facility that was also conducting secret uh, radiation experiments on people. And in his letter, he says... In case you should decide to do another terminal case, I suggest you do 50 micrograms instead of five. This would permit the analysis of much smaller samples and would make my work considerably easier. I feel reasonably certain there would be no harm in using larger amounts of material if you are sure the case is a terminal one. Um, and so their Jeez. findings, what were the results, right? I know. It's like, okay, guys, however you need to justify it. So what they discovered from these radiation studies was that uh, two-thirds of plutonium injected into the bloodstream is deposited into the skeleton, and more than a fifth is deposited into the liver. The level of plutonium in the blood is high at first. It's like 35% um, when injected after about four hours, and it decreases to about 15% after the first day. Um, it falls rapidly, which rules out the use of blood tests as a means of diagnosing the degree of exposure of personnel. Uh, the Los Alamos report used the accumulated data, so from the studies of uh, 15 patients, to determine excretion rate equations, which appear uh, to be most easily described by the following logarithmic function, Y5 AX squared B. <laughs> no, Thank you so much. I'm not making this up. All right. I know you're not. I'm just laughing because you're reading it to us. Uh, well, I have to because I don't understand it. Um, where, um, why is the amount of plutonium expressed as a percent of the injected dose excreted in a single day? X is the time of observation and days after the injection. And A and B are constants derived from the observable data by the method of least squares this equation was, oh, I don't even care. It's so mathy now. But so they got, so they figured out where in the body does plutonium rest 
once it's injected. And then, oh, here's a formula to figure out if somebody presents, we can backtrack to like exposure. How much were they exposed to? When did the exposure happen, right? And so, okay, fine. So they're doing this so that we can protect our, our factory atomic bomb workers. And uh, again, with all of that, allow me to introduce you to the person who discovered radiation because I needed oh somebody to ultimately blame for all of this. It's like, <laughs> where does radiation come from? How did it get here? And why are we sticking it in people? Right? Oh. So um, let us go back in time. Let us go back to uh, 18, the 1860s when Poland was under control of Russia. Russia was stamping out Polish language, Polish intellectuals, Polish art, Polish everything. You could not speak mm. your language at home. You could only speak Russian. All the street signs were replaced with Russian letters. And so into this world, on November 7th of 1867, Manya Solomea Sklodowska was born. She uh, is known to us as Marie Curie, but uh, to her family, she was Manya. Her dad was a science teacher, and he worked at a university teaching male students. Women were not allowed to go to universities. But they were allowed to go to school. And every day that Manya would walk past a statue of the czar, she and her friends would spit on the statue on their way to school. Hmm. Um, in school, you learned Russian. You learned Russian history. You learned that mm -hmm. you were Russian. Everything's Russian, right? But there were teachers who did secretly teach um, Polish poetry, right? The kind of sliding in there, allowing for some Polish uh, language lessons, right? But very much under the radar, and you could be fired immediately for doing this. Her dad was one of those teachers, oh. and her dad got fired. Um, oh. And so the housing came with the job. So they had to switch houses, oh, no. right? Okay. And so it was a family of, um, I believe, five people. And in order to make ends meet, they had to bring in students to rent space, to rent beds and cots, etc. So they would bring in 10 to 20 students at a time wow. to sleep all throughout this. I don't know how big the house was, right? But it was not big. Uh, and so Manya and her family would end up sleeping in the living room and on couches and sometimes in the kitchen when the house was overcrowded, right? But all of that was in an effort to make ends meet. Um, however, the family was, they were members of the intelligentsia. They had been somewhat noble. They were, uh, living in genteel poverty, uh, but super brainiacs. Everybody in the family was, uh, was pushed into school, right? Was pushed to succeed. You were first in your class. You, you were going to have plans for your life, even the girls, right? And that has to be said that way because the expectation was that women would just get married, right? But there was this, this kind of beat in Poland where it was like Polish culture is dying. And so it must be retained. And this means even among the women, every Pole has a, has a sacred duty to their country to keep Polish culture alive. 
So there were these things called flying universities where it would be a group of people who would meet in a basement, in an alley, in somebody's living room. And it was always in rotation, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you would learn about Polish poetry. But this was, this was geared towards women, right? And the idea was that as mothers, they would teach their children about the Polish history and the Polish culture, the Polish literature, and, and you know all these great things about what's happened in the past before Russia came. Um, and so not quite enough of a world for Marie's sister, whose name is something like Bronislova. And let's just call her Bronislova because that's real close to what her name is. Um, and so Bronislova wanted to be a doctor. And there were two places that Poles went when they were going to leave Poland. You either went to Russia or you went to France. And so she went to France to study medicine to become a doctor. And she made a deal with her younger sister, um, Manya, which was, I'm going to go to France. I'm going to study medicine. And when I graduate and become a doctor, you are going to come to France and you will pick up your studies. Because at this time, Manya was flirting with math and chemistry a bit in these flying colleges. Um, and the fact that her dad was a science teacher meant that at home she had a grounding in these in these studies. So Manya remains in Poland and she becomes a governess to a new moneyed family. And the new money family was kind of mean to her because they knew who her family had been, right? Um, right. And her family lost their position partly because of Russia's uh, dominating the country and also right. partly was just the way things fell, right? They okay. just kind of ran out of their money. Um, so they would embarrass and humiliate her for having been somewhat ennobled. And she left that position and she became a governess to another family that really respected her. And they called her our brilliant, our darling Manya. And oh. uh, she was kind of pretty, which is sad to say when you're talking about somebody who achieved so much that I have to comment on her looks. But they're important because the eldest son fell in love with her. And the eldest son went to his parents and said, oh, my God, Manya is so smart. Yeah, she is. And she's so mm -hmm. nice. Oh, she's great. I really want to marry her. No, you have to marry a noble woman. Right. right. We've got, we're new money and we need some old blood. Right. right? right. And you're not going to marry the governess and we don't care yeah. who her family was at any point. It's not like they were right. like, super noble. Right. Cool. All right. So she is heartbroken. But around oh. this time, she gets to go to France and pick up her studies. That's kind of sketchy, though, isn't it? And that then you're govern you're the governess of kids, and one of them wants to marry you. Oh well, and sorry. Um, so he's her age, and he oh. was at university. Yeah, oh, I, okay, you know okay, what? okay, okay, right. Okay. I Thank was like, wait a minute here. <laughs> oh, so sorry. Okay, um, I didn't realize there was so much drama in Marie Curie's life. <laughs> the, the eldest son, who okay. was away studying at university, away university, came home one summer and oh, was that's like, sad. "Wow, you're really beautiful, and you're so smart, you're smart, and you're so great, right? And my family loves you already, right? Right, but not what could go wrong, yeah. right?" However, the family retained her, so so the son was told no. She got to keep her she job. She got to keep her job, right? Uh, I guess that's something. Good enough to work for us, but you're just not yeah. good enough to, to marry into our family, right? Um, so heartbroken, though, she goes to France to start studying 
something in the sciences. And the plan is, her plan is, she's going to go to Paris, she's going to study, and she is going to then come back to Poland. And she is going to work to make Poland a better, more thriving country under the umbrella of the Russian dictatorship or rule or what have you. So, cool. Um, so, she gets to Paris and she gets a little Garrett that's herself. Herself, sorry. It's not herself. She gets a little Garrett and she has space all to herself. And this is one of the few times in her life where she's had private space that was hers. She either lived in a house with 25 other people in it or she was working as a servant in a house and under somebody's beck and call. So she gets to experience a little taste of freedom. Um, she lives a very impoverished life. She has to go to her sister's house for food. She existed on bread and water for months at a time. And and the commentaries about her life, it's very common to read the phrase, Marie Curie fainted from exhaustion and hunger. But she was one of these very driven oh. people who worked until two o'clock in the morning studying, Jesus. right? Wow. And then would get up at six to do it all over again. Um, wow. On no food. On no wow. on no food and no and probably sleep. no coffee either. Well, she couldn't afford it. <laughs> so money was a thing, but she's she's living the life of, of intellectual development, and that is what she is craving. And again, this is all for the purpose of not her own self-glorification, Right, but for but Poland, for Poland. Um, yeah. that is her ultimate plan. Until she meets a French student named Pierre Curie, who was a physicist whose studies actually led to the invention of the ultrasound. So we may credit nice. him as the grandfather of the ultrasound. Thanks, Pierre. Thanks, Pierre. Um, they're married in 1895. They have two daughters, Irene, who later goes on to win a Nobel Prize in chemistry. Wow. And Eve, who goes on to be a concert pianist. Good for her. So I feel bad for Eve. Um, but she got to tour Europe, and so good for Eve. It's pretty but nice. Irene's the daughter that, like, she's the daughter. Became famous, yeah. right? I, Irene's the one that comes up a lot whenever you're looking into Marie Curie's life. It's Irene, 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 Irene. And then Eve. Um, <laughs> all right, cool. So uh, she... They discover, they being Marie and Pierre, discover a new element, right? They're, they're into science. They're doing the research. X-rays were kind of known. Um, the world was very much on, still hooked into Isaac Newton's view of, of the structure of the universe. So there's classical physics, right? But... She and Pierre discover a new element that they call polonium, which is named after Poland. Oh. Uh, and uh, Curie was studying uranium rays as she was preparing for her doctoral thesis. Um, and she made the claim that the rays were not dependent on uranium's form, but on its atomic structure. Her theory created a new field of study, atomic physics, and Marie herself coined the phrase radioactivity. So her discovery kind of pushes science into a new realm of quantum theory and, and quantum mechanics, where we start looking at the subatomic world, right? And this is something that Einstein had been talking about um, in his papers. And so this sort of um, starts to redefine the world of science, right? The basic structure 
of science because it's redefining the basic structure of how the universe is understood. Uh, so in 1903, she and her husband are nominated for the Nobel Prize. Actually, her husband's nominated first and only, um, along with another guy. And he said to the nominating board, I am not going to accept this prize. My wife is my business partner, my academic partner, and she's as responsible for these discoveries as I am. Good so she became the first woman to be nominated for a Nobel Prize and to win a Nobel Prize, right? Um, it, not only was she a woman, but she's an outsider because she's Polish living in France. She's a foreigner. Um, but this gets her some publicity, right? A woman did a thing sure. that a man could do. Right. Right. Um, so her husband's, I don't want to say he's her, her biggest champion, but her husband treats her like a human being, right? Yeah. And he dies in 1906 uh, oh, in a no. carriage accident. Yes, he was crossing the street and he slipped and he fell and um, a horse and carriage ran over his head oh. and oh, crushed God. his skull and he died instantly ah. on the spot, right? Ah. Um, this devastates uh, Marie Curie. Marie. She, there, and there's, there's this very popular image of Marie Curie, and it's thanks to her daughter, um, I think it was Eve who wrote the biography, um, but it might have been Irene. One of her daughters wrote a biography. I should have looked up which one. Um, and the biography is called Madame Curie, right? And in it, kind of the end of the story is that, oh, okay, well, my dad died, and then my mom just never recovered over that and was a grieving widow for the rest of her life. It went on to do all these other great things, but the lover of life was gone, right? Mm-hmm. And Marie Curie's diaries also kind of hold up to to this. Um, she says at one point in her line in her uh, in her diary, um, "The flowers are in bloom. How can they be alive? But you are not. It seems mm-hmm. impossible, right?" Um, so he dies in 1906, and in 1906, the University of Paris offers her his seat as a professor. And she becomes the first female professor at the University of Paris and also the first female professor in France ever. Wow. Right? In 1910, she isolates radium. Um, and she, in 1910, she also defined the international standard for the measurement of radioactive emissions. Um, and it's not that she was working on that. The, the board, there's some academic board that determines like how much a gram is, how long is actually a yard, right? What is an inch really, right? And then they save these things, I guess, in a filing cabinet somewhere where no one's allowed to look at them or touch them because they're super secret, very important. Um, And so they came to her and they were like, all right, radiation, how do we measure this thing? And she's like, well, you should probably measure it. It had something to do with like whatever the emissions were off of one gram. And so Mm -hmm. in her honor for coming up with such a really logical, like, oh, wow, we never would have thought of that. That makes a lot of sense. They call those units Curie. Or curious, oh, right? So, in honor of her or her husband, it's kind of debatable. And her husband, yeah. <laughs> and her husband or her husband because her husband, right? right? right. But uh, so she's isolated radium in 1910. And so here's the thing, and this is just a total aside radium glows. People went crazy for it. It was in makeup, it was That's in right. glassware, it was on My watch dials. To buy some glass, uranium glass. He was was asking me if he could buy uranium glass. I'm like, no. Even though it's fine, I'm like, no. (laughs) You can't buy uranium glass. No, you're going to die. 
it was a thing for sure. Oh, it it was crazy. It was beyond crazy. So here's an ad from 1910 that's called The Power of Radium at Your Disposal and that shows wow. a scientist-looking guy who's sort of smiling all by himself in a laboratory mixing something in a little pot, right? And it starts, 23 years ago, radium was unknown. Today, thanks to constant laboratory work, the power of this most unusual of elements is at your disposable. At your disposal, not disposable. <laughs> they didn't know how to talk back then. Through the medium of Undark, which is the name of this company, radium serves you safely and surely. Does Undark really contain radium? Most assuredly, it is radium combined in exactly the proper manner with zinc sulfide, which gives Undark its ability to shine continuously in the dark. People were super, super fucking excited about radium, right? It was everywhere. You wore patches on your back to relieve pain. You slept wow. with it. It was the wow. cure-all. It was the medicine that you didn't have to take. So that's 1910 when she discovers radium. And in 1911, the French Academy of Sciences failed by two votes to elect her to their membership. Aww. Right? Uh, it was The vote was like 28 to 30. Aww. It's a very small, prestigious group of people, right? Mm -hmm. They don't let her in. Um, in 1962, the first woman was elected, and that first woman was one of Marie Curie's own doctoral students, right? Wow. So, great. She's super famous in France, though, by 1911, right? She, yeah. she is a celebrity, the celebrity female scientist. At the same time, she's, vil she's vilified as a foreigner, an atheist. There's rumors that she's Jewish. Um, her daughter remarked in the hypocrisy of the press uh, later in life that her mother was considered an unworthy foreigner when nominated for a French honor, but the French press um, portrayed her as a heroine when she's receiving international honors like Nobel Prizes. Mm -hmm. So 1911 is an important year, um, and it's fascinating uh, because of a couple of things. And so in 1911... She's nominated for her second Nobel Prize, and she's the only person in Thank history you. to be nominated for two Nobel Prizes in two distinct branches of science, physics Very and nice. chemistry. Great for her. Um, and she's invited to attend the Solvoy, Solvay Conference, which was the smartest people in physics all together in a room, right? They, they brought in, I think it was 29 people total, um, wow. And they took How a fun, well, right? Super fun, and it was it was developed. It was started by the super rich guy who was like, "I love smart people, and I want to be around them, so I'm going to invite them all to this really prestigious thing." There had been other um, academic conferences that occurred in the past, but they were really large, and the big famous one was like 900 people, which was way too long, way too big for people to like get together and collectively network. So, so this smaller conference was the ideal size, and a young Albert Einstein attended. Where oh, fun! Yeah, uh, he was rather like Marie Curie, an outsider in the scientific community because he was Jewish, right? But also a foreigner, and also these new ideas. What are you doing, right? Um, and so this conference was looking at 
two problems. They were, well, actually it was one problem. They were looking at having two approaches in science, classical physics and quantum theory, right? Mm. Which, what are we going to do? There's two mm -hmm. ways to look at the world. And we still have that issue today, right? right? What happens, right? Okay, cool. So that's what the conference was designed to address. Um, unfortunately, during the conference, it came to light that Marie Curie had been having an affair for the past year with uh -oh. a gentleman named Paul Longvon, who was married and oh. had been a student of Pierre's. So this was somebody that she had oh. known for years, right? Right. Known him for years and years and years. He was famously unhappily married. He was oh. famously a serial philanderer, right? Oh, no. And oh, Marie, his no. marriage was pretty Godzilla kind of territory. Like they, right. they were yelling and screaming and throwing shit at each other nonstop oh a God. lot. It was apparently it was really bad. Um, and so the press got a hold of this because Paul's wife found Marie's love letters to Paul. Oh no. And in those love letters, Marie gave Paul advice on how to leave his wife. Oh, Don't get her pregnant. Gosh. It would be the worst oh, God, thing. Right. <laughs> that was actual advice. Don't <laughs> don't get her pregnant. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Good advice, Marie. Actually, um, all it's things considered. But so, th those letters with that type of advice coming from a foreign woman who's smart and doing things other women don't do, she was dragged through the press. She was vilified oh. as a homewrecker, a foreigner, a Jewish atheist, and worse, she was five years older than Paul. So, wow. I, and this comes out during the conference, right? So right. Oh, no. she's the only fucking woman at the conference. Oh no. Right? With oh, 28 of the smartest people, most acknowledged smart people yeah. in the whole world. Young Albert yeah. Einstein is there, right? And right. young Albert Einstein uh, says to her, uh, he actually, he took a shine to... Oh, dear. Uh, to Marie. Marie, yeah. And <laughs> my joke is, radium and shining, but... That's funny. Yeah, thank you. I made that one up just now. Um, <laughs> but actually, he was, he was a Marie Curie fan, right? Um, she lit up the room for him. Hi, I can't stop. Uh, and he told her, ignore the press. It's written for reptiles allow the lizards their entertainment. Oh my God. You are above this, right? Now, this is great advice coming from somebody who had recently gotten one of his own students pregnant. Oh boy. And then later in life uh, has an affair with his first cousin while he's married to somebody, right? Wow. And then divorces his wife and marries his first cousin. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Me either. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that until yesterday. Um <laughs> But okay, so this breaks during the um, Salvoy Sal conference. Sure, Solvay, Solvay, I'll get it. It'll be there. I'm trying mm -hmm. to say Solvang. Um, she returns to Paris to find a mob in front of her house smashing the windows, right? No. Oh, yeah. People are fucking pissed off. They are not happy wow. with her, right? So she takes her kids and they, they go into hiding and uh, things are rough for her for a while. Now, you may recall that she'd been awarded a Nobel Prize in 1911, right? And the conference mm -hmm. happens in 1911, and the affair breaks, and news of the affair breaks in 1911. Oh, boy. And so the committee says to Marie, 
hey, you're going to get your prize and all that, right? Because radium, wow, you did it's it, yeah. pretty. But look, uh, don't come because you're going to embarrass the king. Aww. We can't have any nasty women showing up in Sweden, right? Aww. And she says to the conference, I thought that it was my work that was receiving the award. There is no relation between my scientific work and my private life. And she went to Sweden and received her, her. award, right? And nobody said a thing. Um, Good. But uh, I listened to a podcast that did make a comment that during dinner, um, there were background musicians playing, and they played mm -hmm. Carmen, which is apparently an opera about a woman that inspires a duel between two men, and they get shot for her loose morals by one of the guys that was in the duel. She's accidentally shot. I guess so. I, I studied Carmen, but I don't remember what happened. Oh, okay. I never have, um, but I'm sure I might recognize the music. I wouldn't know it was from Carmen. Uh, and then that was followed up by something, a piece entitled Cleopatra, who also is a famous philanderer, uh, right? How so, rude. Yes, yes, exactly. How rude. Intentional? Who could say? But maybe. Uh, but so she gets her award. Great. And then World War One breaks out. And she says. That's what happens when you give a woman a Nobel Prize. Exactly. The world loses <laughs> its shit. Um, and so she says um, in an interview, I'm going to give up the little gold I possess. I shall add to this the scientific medals, which are quite useless to me. There is something else. By sheer laziness, I have allowed the money for my second Nobel Prize to remain in Stockholm in Swedish crowns. This is the chief part of what we possess, meaning her family. Um, mm -hmm. I should like to bring it back here and invest it in war loans. The state needs it. Only I have no illusions. This money will probably be lost. Um, she does take her two Nobel Prize medals to the bank to turn them in so that they can be melted into gold and that the money could be used by the state. And the bank mm -hmm. refuses to accept her medals, yeah. right? Which, cool. All right. So she gets to keep her medals. Um, she invents mobile x-ray units, which became known as Petite Curies. Um, she became the director of the Red Cross Radiology Service, and she set up the first military radiology center, um, she directed the installation of 20 mobile units and 200 field hospitals. She was assisted Damn. by her 17-year-old daughter, Irene, and she trained other women as aides. Uh, in 1925, Marie produced hollow needles containing radium emanation, now known as radon, for sterilizing infected tissues. And it's estimated that, uh, that her work helped treat one million soldiers during the World War I. In spite of all her humanitarian contributions to the French war effort, she never received any formal recognition from the French government. In 1921, the U.S. invited her to the States, and she met uh, President Warren G. Harding at the White House, and the First Lady praised her as an example of a professional achiever who was also a supportive wife. Um, Jesus. France embraced her international fame, and they were embarrassed that she was going abroad without any French medals. So they gave her a Legion of Honor award, which she refused. Um, in 1922, she became a member of the League of Nations' newly created International Committee on Intellectual Cooperation. And she sat on the committee until 1934, the year of her death. 
Uh, in 23, she wrote a biography of her husband. In 25, Poland invited her to become the director of the Radium Institute. Uh, in 1932, the Institute opened with her sister, Bronislawa, as their director. Oh, wow. I know, right? Uh, Cornell Professor University L. Pierce Williams, I hate that guy, totally kidding, I don't know who he is, observes, <laughs> the result of Curie's work was epoch-making. Radium's radioactivity was so great that it could not be ignored. It seemed to contradict the principle of the conservation of energy and therefore forced a reconsideration of the foundations of physics. On the experimental level, the discovery of radium provided men like Ernest Rutherford with sources of radioactivity with which they could probe the structure of the atom. As a result of Rutherford's experiments with alpha radiation, the nuclear atom was first postulated. In medicine, the radioactivity of radium appeared to offer a means by which cancer could be successfully attacked. If Curie's work, this is not a uh, professor speaking, this is just a follow-up. If Curie's work helped overturn established ideas in physics and chemistry, it had an equally profound effect in the societal sphere. To attain her scientific achievements, she had to overcome barriers in both her native and adoptive countries that were placed in her way because she was a woman. She died in 1966. Um, her daughter, Irene, died in 1958. Both died of cancer from radiation. Mm -hmm. Eve, her youngest daughter, the concert pianist, lived to be 100 years old. Wow. Yeah. And then when she was asked what did she attribute her great age to, she replied, book learning will kill you, play the piano. <laughs> 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 <I'm> fucked up. <laughs> She said, hold on. <laughs> I can't. I can't do it. She said, okay, I can do this. She said, she said, be professional, Theo. She said, she said, book, book learned will kill you. Play the piano. She did not. No, she did not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no. Of course not. <laughs> oh, if only I had effed it up. I would have, oh, that would have been so great. so pretty good. Man. But she did live to be 100. So, I mean, that that her. is not a lie. And that is the end of the fascinating <laughs> life of Marie Curie, who discovered radiation-ish and did, did stuff with it. Did she live in it. France all her life or did she ever leave? Uh, she went back to Poland a lot, but she never left. Uh, there was a huh. period when uh, Pierre had proposed and she was writing letters back home where she said she didn't know what to do. She was torn. And her dad yeah. said, um, it is better for you to be a happy French scientist than a miserable Polish school teacher. Well, for sure, yeah. So, but I just wondered if she ever left France and moved somewhere else just because the French were kind of rude to her. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Yeah. All right. Interesting. I, I didn't know all that about Marie Curie. Yeah, neither did I. And I was like, she can't get any more fascinating. Um, so there yeah. we are. There we go. The fascinating life of Marie Curie. Okay, so we have our apology and a rating. We do. We do. We do. We do. So President Clinton, um, in his speech to whoever he spoke to, uh, the people in general, I guess, um, 
after receiving this, I keep going back to this 900-page report, um, did make an apology. Um, and he said, the United States of America offers a sincere apology to those of our citizens who are subjected to these experiments, to their families, and to their communities. When the government does wrong, we have a moral responsibility to admit it. The duty we owe to one another to tell the truth and to protect our fellow citizens from excesses like these is one we can never walk away from. Our government failed in that duty, and it offers an apology to the survivors and their families, and to all the American people who must be able to rely upon the United States to keep its word, to tell the truth, and to do the right thing. We know there are moments when words alone are not enough. That's why I'm instructing my cabinet to use and build on these recommendations to devise promptly a system of relief, including compensation, that meets the standards of justice and conscience. When called for, we will work with Congress to serve the best needs of those who were harmed. Make no mistake, as the committee report says, there are circumstances where compensation is appropriate as a matter of ethics and principle. I am committed to seeing to it that the United States of America lives up to its responsibility. Our greatness is measured not only in how frequently we do right, but also how we act when we know we've done the wrong thing, how we confront our mistakes, make our apologies, and take action. Clinton said that most of the Cold War era experiments were conducted in an ethical manner, but others, including the plutonium experiments, were wrong and often shrouded in secrecy, not for a compelling need for national security, but for the simple fear of embarrassment. Promising to prevent future abuses, the president also established a National Bioethics Advisory Commission to help shape policy regarding research to assure protection of human test subjects. He also ordered a government-wide review to make certain that the rights of anyone participating in a medical experiment is protected. He acknowledged that medicine, sorry, medical and scientific progress depends upon learning about people's responses to new medicines, to new cutting-edge treatments. We have to continue to research, but there is a right way and a wrong way to do it. So that was basically the gist of his apology. Um, it was there was a, I, I saw the YouTube video. I don't know if you watched it. It was like thirty minutes long. The the um, the press conference or whatever it was the the ceremony in which uh, he talked about the um, the issues and gave his apology. So I watched that and and that's that's mostly I gave the highlights of what he said there, not the whole thing. So I think overall um, the apology was a good apology. He did express regret. Um, he kind of talked about one right what went wrong. Um, he acknowledged responsibility, declared repentance, uh, did some things to make rep rep reparations, or at least indicated that he would be doing things to make reparations. And uh, he did, I looked into it a little bit, uh, he did in the next several years um, give victims money, and then uh, a request for forgiveness. So I think overall this is a pretty good apology. Um, just, just look, focusing on the apology itself and not what happened that required the apology, right. I would give it an 8 out of 10. All right, cool. I was giving it a 7 out of 10, but, you know, also mm -hmm. it's that it's the weight of what happened that I know I'm right. not separating out. Um, right. So, so yeah, 7.5. I mean, high, good, and again, I mean, high rating. Good apology. Yeah, good apology. I mean, Clinton had the smirk on his face the whole time, which is one reason I hated him so much, is because he always had this stupid fucking smirk on his face. Oh, I hate that man so much. But anyway, um, it, it was a good apology, even though he was smirking half the time he said it. Well, he was getting away with murder, and he was laying all the ladies. So. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> he was happy. I really hate Bill Clinton, but that's all right. Um, you know, I'd take Bill Clinton over Trump any fucking day. In a day. hot fucking second, please. fucking I would take I don't George Bush over. I'd take... I'll say nearly uh, anybody. anybody, but any yeah, any right? previous president over 
Just about. Yeah. I'm not any previous president. <laughs> oh, come on. But most. I mean, some presidents were pretty bad. I mean, worse Trump was Trump? probably the worst, though. No, I don't think there were any that are worse than Trump. You're right. You're right. I'd, I'd rather have Bill Clinton than, than the majority of other presidents, though, even though I hate him. And I can't even say his name without saying that I hate him. <laughs> well, he likes you. I know that from Hillary. <laughs> he says such good things about you, Juliet. Does. So, <laughs> I'm sure he does. Um, okay, so you give it a 7.5 and I give it an 8. So we'll just average that to 7.75, which is good. Uh, we'll note that down in our Excel spreadsheet of apologies and their right, ratings. Right, <laughs> absolutely, which we are keeping up with totally. This is the third Clinton apology and I wonder. I know how many more are there. I wonder. There are lots. We should of just do an episode where it's all of the Clinton apologies minus the ones we've covered. <laughs> the the greatest hits of Bill Clinton apologies. Yeah. So okay. So I guess we've covered this one. That was an interesting topic. Um, do we have any apologies expected or um, what you call them? Who's sorry now? <laughs> I have an apology expected. Uh, what you okay. call them? Um, <laughs> So this one is an apology expected from Beatrice Nixon. I'm having a really hard time not calling her Beatrix, but it's Beatrice Dixon. She's the founder of Honeypot, which is, well, I'll I'll read you the opening paragraph, right? Okay. She's the 38-year-old founder and CEO who started the world's first plant-based feminine care line with a $21,000 loan. The idea huh. for Honeypot came to Beatri- Beatrice in a dream. Um, after trying nearly everything on the market to cure her bacterial vaginosis to no avail, God. Dixon was fed up with the lack of options for women's vaginal health. Then one night, her late grandmother appeared to her in her sleep with the idea to create her own natural remedy to treat the problem. Oh I doubt all of that highly. It sounds like a really nice foundation story, but yeah. this is what the story is. The next day, Dixon went to the local Whole Foods, where she worked at the time, to buy a list of natural ingredients for a potential solution. Fast forward six years, and that list of ingredients Dixon tested and perfected led to the world's first plant-based feminine care line sold at major retailers, including Whole Foods, Target, Walgreens, etc. You may remember uh, there was something at Target a while ago about they had a, a, a product that was for African-American women. And there was a lot of backlash because the owner said something about helping to elevate black women. And it was like, Hmm. this is racist talk. How dare you leave out all white people, right? Hmm. So whatever. There was a big hubbub like "Eh, 2017, 2018. Well, Ms. Dixon sold her company, The Honeypot, to a big corporation that's owned by a bunch of white guys. And they've gone in and changed the formula and didn't tell anybody. Oh, boy. And so uh, today on Twitter, thank you, Twitter, I would like to thank, uh, now I have to get to Twitter. Life is so hard. Um, A tweeter named Zanya Baudi, who said, Honeypot got bought out by white folks, and now they're not organic anymore. I hate the world, and the world hates my coochie. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what is this tweet about? And that's how I figured this out. Well, I didn't figure anything out. That's how I learned. Oh, right? I see. So, um, so yes, they've put paraffin in and some other things, some stabilizers, right? Some stuff. I wonder that's just what the main organic. ingredients are in it. Do you know what the active ingredients are? 
Uh, it's plant-based feminine care. Okay. Well, there's no way we could find out. There's no way to ever know. No, but there there is treatment for bacterial vaginosis, and it's called metronidazole, and it's available by prescription because it works. So I don't know what this is that she's come up with, but um, I'd be curious to hear about it. So I'll have to do some research on that. Yes. Very interesting. Well, anyway, um, sold, and she didn't tell anybody, and they didn't announce that the product had been modified Changed. with shelf yeah. stabilizers, which apparently are non-organic. And so a lot of users are... Not it's not Annoyed. sitting comfortably with a lot of users. Hi, thank you. I did that on purpose. God. <laughs> so you expect her to apologize for this? Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. She why well, she took the money and ran. And she did. Yep. And she's not gonna apologize. She's, <laughs> she's gonna start up another company with with her her, her millions of dollars. Why bother? Make extra money. <laughs> right. Well, she's got nothing to apologize for. <laughs> All right. I have an apology expected too. And um, I'm going to read this quote from Jim Geldhoff, who is a DEA supervisor who um, investigated this pharmaceutical company called Malincrote. And he said, everybody thinks of Purdue when they think about the opioid epidemic, but Malincrote was far worse. They were up to their eyeballs at oxycodone, and they knew exactly what they were doing. Their drugs had become the most popular on the street, and they jumped in with both feet. And this is according to a May 10th article in the Washington Post. Malincrote was the largest manufacturer of opioids in the United States, and their pills were supplied to more than half of the who died of opioid-related overdoses, at least in Massachusetts, in the past 12 years, which was almost 10,000 people. Um, By comparison, Purdue supplied opioids to about 3,000 people who died in the state. And most Americans probably have never heard of Malincrote, but in 2010, the DEA called them the kingpin within the drug cartel of legitimate companies driving the opioid epidemic. Company managers, of course, pressured sales reps to find doctors who would write large numbers of prescriptions and targeted them for continued business, rewarding top performers with bonuses and overseas vacations and firing those who failed to meet sales goals. Of its top 239 prescribers of opioids in 2013, more than a quarter of them were later convicted of crime related to their medical practices, had their medical licenses suspended or revoked, or paid state and federal fines after being accused of wrongdoing. So I'm expecting an apology. Well, I'm expecting a lawsuit um, <laughs> for Malincrote. <laughs> this should be called apology and or lawsuit expected. So I'm expecting a lawsuit and or an apology, probably both, from Malincrote at some point in the near future. Oh, you know it's coming. Yeah. It's going to. I, I don't think Purdue. Did Purdue ever apologize? I don't think so. I think they're still being sued. So I don't think they can apologize without it being seen as an admission of guilt. I can't even keep up anymore. There's the right? Stackler family and right, Stackler, w- yeah. are they personally responsible or not? And blah blah blah. And it's, it's just crazy. This whole opioid thing. It's. I mean, it, and the people that are suffering are the people who are really in serious pain who need who need medication to treat their pain. And even people who are at end of life and who are dying of cancer and other things that are in serious pain, they have a hard time getting opioids because of this whole mess. So these pharmaceutical companies have a lot to answer for. Yes, they do. Thank goodness they have a lot of money to help them create answers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, there there goes another week. Or as they said on Car Talk, you've wasted another hour listening to our show. Thank you for being here with us, and we hope we'll uh, hear from you and see you and listen and to you. And touch you and feel you. And <laughs> <laughs> Next week. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye, everybody.
for listening to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. You can find links to the articles and the sources in the show notes. To submit an apology or find out more, visit us at apologiesaccepted.net, where you can also find our merchandise. We're on Twitter at Apologies Accepted. And on Instagram at apologies.accepted. You can support our important work at Patreon forward slash Apologies Accepted. And fuck Facebook. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>